Hello, I'm Jason Concepcion, and this is Foundation, the official podcast from Apple TV+. We are here at the end of Foundation Season 1 to talk about the finale, The Leap. Joining me again, David S. Goyer, showrunner and executive producer. Hello. David, how are you? I'm good. David, your writing credits for the show include Episode 1 and 2, and this finale, which you also directed. Um, for everyone listening... It's the last time I'm going to say this. Spoilers. This is the finale. What are you doing? Serious spoilers. <laughs> stop it. <laughs> if you have not watched the finale, press stop right now. Go watch it. Come back. Listen to this podcast. Quick recap on the stuff that happens in this amazing finale. Harry Seldon explains himself. Finally. Demarzel snaps Dawn's neck and cracks are beginning to appear in the genetic dynasty. Salvor leaves Terminus to find Gale, who, spoiler, is her mother. Folks, it's a lot. Foundation, the <laughs> official podcast, is your guide to the galaxy from Trantor to Terminus and Anacreon. Space is a big place, and we aim to make it smaller and brighter and add some context to everything you see on the show. David, here we are at the finale. Uh, yes. How does it feel now that all of this has come to completion. I hope that it's a satisfying experience for the audience. You know, as a viewer, it's amazing when I feel like the show sticks the landing. Yeah. So I hope we've done that. I'm always curious, and there was no way to tell what percentage of the audience might have sensed or guessed Mm -hmm. that Gail is actually Salver's mother. I didn't start wondering about it until uh, two episodes ago. Two, well, that's that's about pretty there. good then. Yeah, because about Because you're a person who's, by dint of circumstance, sort of looking for those moments, yes. you know, and looking, looking for those kind of Easter eggs or these little threads that are dropped. So I, I'm just really fascinated to see to what degree the audience caught on to that. I wanted even though a lot of apocalyptic things happen in this episode, yeah. I wanted to leave the audience with a gift and a sense of feeling hopeful and in a way to really not end on a cliffhanger. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Gail, from almost the moment she steps on Terminus, everything just goes so bad for her. Yep. She literally loses everyone on her planet she comes home and it's it's just this massive gut punch and then she's given this incredible gift this seemingly impossible thing that you can only pull off in science fiction what were you doing down there the readout said you'd been in cryo over a century i crash landed i came looking for someone who you what? My name is Salvor Hardin. I'm your daughter. She is reunited with a daughter that existed as a zygote the last time <laughs> yeah. she saw her. And, and, and her daughter is actually biologically older than she is. Yeah, which is wild. As well. <laughs> um, but I, I, I wanted to leave the audience feeling hopeful and... My biggest desire was to make Foundation feel emotional. 
what about your emotions in this moment? This is a story that you have a long relationship with, as you've talked about uh, on previous episodes, that you've shepherded through this process for years. Now you wrote the finale, and then you directed it, and now you've seen it produced and aired. How are you feeling about it? I feel pretty good about it. I mean, I, I it was a tightrope act, you know, adapting this show, working on this show, trying to do something that visually felt a little different, mm-hmm. um, trying to tell this epic science fiction story where we also go down these little side channels and tell these short film stories, these tone poems. Um, you know, my hope is that by entertaining people, it maybe gets them to think about some things that they might not normally think about. You know, I wanted to tell an epic journey and I wanted to tell a personal journey. And it was important to me that, but for the framing device on Terminus, that we start on Synax and we end on Synax. Yeah. And that we, Synax bookends everything. And the other thing that's interesting is that, you know, Gail is the last Synaxian. She's she's the wow. last person of her race, of her of her homeworld now. Um, which harkens back to what she was saying in episode two about what's remembered and what's forgotten. And, yeah. And will her world and her kind be forgotten? And and they were. They only live now in her memory. Um, let's get finally to the vault. It is really a strike. First of all, just visually, it is a striking object. How did that design uh, take shape? In the early days when we were prepping the pilot, um, Rupert Saunders was the director of the pilot. And we had a variety of concept artists that were coming up with designs and shapes for the vault. Many, many dozens of different designs and shapes. And I think quite rightfully so, Matt Chernus at Apple kept saying, none of these feel iconic enough Mm. and simple enough. You know, it it just came down to literally Chris McLean, my VFX supervisor, and I doodling in his office. I was literally drawing on a napkin. Wow. Different shapes. And then he was on his computer uh, modeling them in 3D, whatever shape I was designing. And it was late at night. It was like one in the morning. And we came up with this idea of this shape with a negative space in between. And we both said, that's it. With something like the vault, how much did you want to or not want to lay Easter eggs in for what could possibly come out of it? Well, for the people that have read the books, they know that in the books there was a recording of Harry Seldon. And it's a little vague, but it feels like the characters in the books are aware that that's what the vault contains and that the vault will open up at appropriate times and Harry will speak to them. But Harry exists and lives on in this show in a way that's different from the books. Mm -hmm. We knew that Harry Seldon would be an ongoing presence and an ongoing character throughout the story. So... I just thought it would be interesting if the people in Terminus were in the dark as to what the vault was and what was inside it, 
Because I think if they felt that, at least for that first crisis, Harry was in there, Mm -hmm. I think they wouldn't be able to resist pleading to him to come out. And then God knows what would happen if he didn't come out uh, over the intervening years. Now it'll be interesting because moving forward in success in future seasons, now the people of the foundation know that he's in there. And unlike the books, he's an AI. He's, he's somebody that can communicate to them in real time. So what will be interesting moving forward is, you know, Polly, who's one of these kids that was yeah. daring to um, try to get to the vault at the very beginning of the first episode. As Harry's leaving to go back into the vault, he says, will we see you again? Will we see you again? Oh, I expect so, Polly. This isn't the Foundation's first crisis, and it won't be the last. You've brought a reprieve, but war with Empire is inevitable. Well, so what's interesting about that is now he's told the people of Terminus that he's going to come back. Yeah. And so moving forward, what I'm excited to get into is, well, what does that do to a population once a god Mm. has made an appearance and then said they will return, but hasn't specified when they will return? And then what does that mean when all the people that witnessed that moment have now passed away and there's no firsthand information about that moment anymore? And so that's interesting to me as well. And Asimov himself started to play around with that in some of the later stories of Foundation, um, where the Foundation itself almost becomes like this new kind of religion. And we're certainly going to be exploring that in success. Harry's reappearance is an earthquake for his followers, as is the reveal to them that the Foundation has a truly revolutionary mission, which he lied about. Yeah, he they, says, I lied about I that. I might have lied about that. Uh, yeah, I love that. I mean, and I and I enjoyed that even in Asimov's book, is that the entire premise upon which the Foundation is built was a lie. Yeah. They are meant to supplant empire. They are meant to be an alternative, a better society. The Encyclopedia Galactica was just a ruse by which they could get out from under Empire's thumb and 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 get away. Um and and I, I love that. I love that he pulls the rug out from under yeah. the audience. I love that he pulls the rug out from under his own followers. Um but then of course there's this other rug that's pulled out and that's from under Salver, who yes. has come to believe that she has this special relationship with a vault. She's immune to the null field. She believes at a certain point that Harry is in there or communicating with her in some way and guiding her to solve the crisis. And then he doesn't know who she is. Yeah. At all. And, uh, and, and, and the other interesting thing, and I'm curious to what extent the audience picks up on this, is he then says, where's Gail? Yes, that was quite notable. So, and then you think... Is this a different entity from the one that was talking to Gail on the Raven? Right. I mean, that was my thought. Spoiler. Yes. How would they even communicate if they could? Would they get along? Are Are they identical, like truly identical? Or do their differing experiences turn them into different 
entities? I, I would assume you're going to answer all these questions. Well, this and- is this is what I thought. I mean, I, I part of the adaptation process for Foundation is, of course, updating the metaphor for the world that we live in today and then deciding what to include, mm-hmm. what to expand upon, you know, what to excise. So in the books, it's revealed that there are two foundations. And first foundation exists ignorant of the plan. Mm -hmm. They proceed blindly. Second foundation, it's revealed later on in the books, is aware of the plan, has access to the math, and are actually meant to put their thumbs on the scales at different points in the journey. And the first foundation is ignorant of the second foundation. And so I thought that was interesting. And then I started to think about, well, what if there were two Harrys that were kind of operating along the same principle? And so I'm I'm hoping people will think about the fact that Gail pulled that knife out of its little mm-hmm. uh, holder in episode eight, the one that presumably had Harry's consciousness in it. And I'm hoping people will think about the fact that the Harry that comes out of the vault says, where's Gail? Yeah. Clearly, they don't seem like the same person. Uh, Another big reveal from Harry is that, as we noted, that Encyclopedia Galactica, that was... Bullshit. Complete ruse. He must have calculated that this reveal now was worthwhile. Is it? Is he concerned about the way that his people will react to understanding that they've been lied to it's, for all these years? It's funny. Um, I think he, he knew that they would be, but there's a there's actually a passage in the novel that um, originally, I mean, it's a long scene, but originally the scene was longer. And there's actually this moment, and I'm going to butcher it, so please don't excoriate me, but... But there's a passage in the novel when Harry is talking to the foundation, basically telling them the, the encyclopedia was a ruse. And he it's even more brutal than that because he says, basically, your retreat has been cut off. <laughs> and I'm paraphrasing that, that what are you going to do about it? Right. You're out here. You have no choice. You have no choice but to keep going on. And so it's, he's even more, that version is even more manipulative. He says something more inspirational here, which he says, I I wasn't curating information. I was curating people. So while, yes, he was manipulating them, what he's telling all of them, the Anacreans, the Thespans, all of the Termini that have, you know, survived is, is that he hand-selected everyone because they had skill sets that he thought would be critical or vital in, mm. in building a new society. So it's a yes, curate people. Yes, it's yeah. disappointing. But he's also saying you guys are the prize, not that water clock. Yeah. It's you. Mary in particular seems like that's not going to be enough. She says he didn't not he didn't just not tell us he lied to us. It's like when I gave you a crayon and told you to take notes at my lecture. He gave us busy work. Yeah. Um, I love that line. It, it was really I think, I think, heartbreaking. I think Jane Espenson wrote that line. Um yeah, because she grew up as an encyclopedist. Yeah. She fell into Lewis's camp more. In fact, she was disappointed that her daughter 
didn't want to be an encyclopedist, that her daughter wanted to be, you know, out hanging out with Bishop's Claws and ice loons and things like that. And so it's it's a hard blow for her to take personally. And then she has another blow that she gets later on in which she's we we reveal that she's been keeping a secret from Salva herself this whole time. On the slow ship, we had a seed bank program. It wasn't safe bringing a baby to time and space. So we banked our eggs and embryos as insurance against the future. I chose one from a controversial donor. Gail Dornick. I got to know her a little before we lost her. She had a remarkable mind. And the father? Rage Foss. Talk about this. How did you come up with this decision, uh, this twist? And I was really touched by how Salvor, obviously, that relationship is not going anywhere in her heart emotionally. She honors that relationship that she has. With That's her with mother her, still. With, wait, she still carried her right. with her birth mother, yes. bio, bio, but not her biological mother. Yeah, despite the voices and the instincts and the visions that she has and the source that she now uh, knows is her mom, she still honors that relationship with Mary. Well, we talk a lot about how... I've said this time and time again about every time we're working through these stories on Foundation, we try to come up with real-world analogs. So this is a story about a kid who always felt a little different yeah. from her parents and finds out she's adopted. And 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 the, the tension with that, and, and, you know, I know someone who this happened to who the parents didn't tell them they were adopted. Oh, wow. And didn't want them to feel different or less than or not loved or to have the insecurity of feeling like a, a parent gave them away. And um, they felt betrayed, but they didn't learn this information in, until they were older, which I completely understand. But I also understand the desire to to want to protect the child from that. And, and so Mari and Salver have always had a fraught relationship. Mm-hmm. Salver is not like Mari. And Mari knows that Salver's a lot more like Gail in a lot of ways. The reason why Mari didn't tell Salver who her biological mother was is because the foundation thinks that Gail had a hand in murdering Harry Selden. So she didn't want her daughter growing up as the daughter of the person who murdered the prophet. I mean, that just seemed like something, you know, a huge onus to put on Salver's shoulders. We get an answer to Salvor's visions, and we see that uh, she has been seeing visions of Gale, her biological mom, as a child on Synax, uh, and then also as Raish as a child. But how... How does this, how does this work? And is this prescient? How does that superpower work? How does it work? Is is she seeing the past? Is it like a biological, spiritual connection? How is she engaging with this, <clears throat> these visions? She's uh, inheriting, it's genetic memory, which is, I know, mm. a term that's sort of bandied about. But, but the rules are, is, you know, ostensibly is she can remember 
or access anything that her parents experienced up until that point of conception. You know, after that, after she was a little zygote put in a tube, she wouldn't have any memories of what happened to Gil, per se, after that. So, you know, hope in the future and success, we'll explore that superpower a bit more. But to put a finer point on it, right, uh, Gail has, you know, extrasensory perception, tele- you know, precognitive yeah. abilities, things like she is a mutant, you know, in the same way that the mule, which is another character that will show up as. So that means Salver is as well. Um, you talked about beginning on Synax and ending on Synax, and we begin this season with Salvor uh, awakens in the night and is driven outside to go to the vault. And again, here she is, something is calling her, is motivating her to move, to telling her that it's time to leave. Right. Um, what is that? What is What is driving her? You know, we shot the show sort of in country order, meaning all of the right. all of the scenes that took place on the sets in Ireland were shot first. And then the whole production and all the directors would move to Malta and shoot out all of their scenes and then on to the next country. And so when we arrived in the Canary Islands, myself and the other directors now had to go back to episode three and start shooting all the scenes on Terminus, you know, in, in episode three. So it was interesting. I knew that I wanted Salver waking up with Hugo to echo the moments that she wakes up in episode three. Yeah. And so I worked very closely with Alex Graves, who was a sort of primary director on season one. And, you know, we talked a lot about that. And so we kind of storyboarded together and even down to when Salver wakes up and she goes out and in this case he's the mystery girl instead of the mystery yeah. boy i use the same lenses oh, wow. um shooting in the you know the same angle largely the same time of day i wanted it to have that feel of of repetition the other thing that's you know um anytime when you're writing a script and you write magic hour uh, <laughs> which is that you know hour before yes. you know the sun goes down which is the most beautiful time to shoot either dawn or dusk Productions hate it because, you know, there's there's not that much magic hour. Yeah. But in the Canary Islands, which has this, which is sort of like midway between Europe and Africa, um, magic hour lasts like two hours. And so it's, it's crazy. Almost like a third of that episode was shot at magic hour. And it's the kind of thing that it's also hard because it meant like all, all this stuff um, on Synax, quote, mm-hmm. in Magic Hour. Yeah, we had to shoot that over about four different evenings. Oh, wow. Um, and and everything is just very disjointed. It's like, okay, now we're going to shoot these, you know, five shots this evening. And then we're going to come back the next evening and pray it doesn't rain and shoot these five shots. And then and these five shots and these five shots. How did you shoot the underwater scenes on, on Synax? So the underwater, yeah, to, not to make it even more difficult for myself. But um, we shot a lot of the Synax work on water tanks in Malta. So a lot of the scenes when Gail is in her little kayak going to and from I need one of those, yeah, by the way. They I know. just like you just There's throw a, it in and it just becomes just a solid. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But um yeah, when you when you're seeing all of that stuff in a lot of the shots, 
the water tank went, I don't know, a couple hundred yards out. Wow. And then there was an edge and it stopped. And then after that would be like downtown Malta. <laughs> and so in all those shots, we're digitally adding, you know, to the vanishing point, the, the rest of the ocean. But we did also shoot some stuff on open water. The the We built a small section of the beggars. We sunk it in one of the tanks. Um, we had an underwater photographer. We had, I don't know, we had about eight to 10 uh, divers that were down there. It helped that Lou, I mean, I was just so fortunate that Lou is a really good swimmer. I mean, I was going to say, what is her lung capacity? Is she well, like a Well, here's what's Olympic crazy. Swimmer? So her dad is an amateur, and I'm not kidding, spear fisherman. Oh, wow. So she actually grew up in real life swimming in the ocean and going spearfishing. And, and she's an incredible swimmer. And we just lucked out that we didn't have to double her for a lot of that. Although she did did have a, a double um, for some of it. And, um, you know, it was we were hanging out around these tanks and uh, she would go down for, she could hold her breath for about a minute. And, wow. <laughs> and it, it was very time consuming. And, uh, and then later on in the open water stuff, she was in the ocean doing some shots. Um, myself and our director of photography and a few other people were in a Zodiac, which is sort of like an inflatable raft. Um, and in this case, we were tethered to the camera by uh, a, like a wire. So we could see like a tiny little view of what the underwater camera meant. We had radios and whatnot, but we were on that raft getting incredibly wow. sea- seasick, you know, while that was happening. Uh Something I found profound about this episode was the uh, contrast between the foundation, which is growing, uh, as we see through that montage of the steadily growing town, uh, and the empire, which is crumbling, turning inward, retracting. You know, the uh, Thespis and Anacreon are reaching out to each other. There's all these new connections. Salvor and Gale meeting for the first time. There's all these – the space suddenly feels – like it is full of possibility. But from the Empire's perspective, I mean, uh, dusk and day come to blows. Got her damn wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, it's funny. The the story back at the Empire, I, I, it's very Wagnerian. And, and um, it feels very operatic. It does. You know? <laughs> and uh, we were always building towards Dawn's fate. Mm-hmm. But everyone that sees it is shocked by it. I am loyal, Empire. To the Cleonic dynasty above all else. <gasps> Talk about the, the genesis of that moment when Demarzel, seemingly against her programming, snaps Dawn's, Dawn's neck. neck. Well, that's the thing. So after their experience on the Maiden, in which Demarzel was, her soul was wounded yeah. by day. You know, he forced her to kill this woman that she so admires who and um, she's brutally reminded of her lack of agency as a being. And what I was hoping would happen with this final moment is, did she snap Dawn's neck because she had to, because her job is to preserve the genetic Mm -hmm. dynasty? Or did a part of her snap Dawn's neck because Day took something away from her mm-hmm. and now she's going to take something away from him. You know, I, you can let the audience decide. It's funny, we, we did, we did, 
a number of different takes with Lara, who plays Demerzel, with some of those final looks between her and Day. And um, we did a couple of takes where, where she was much more outwardly emotional. And I ultimately opted for this take that is harder to read into, but mm-hmm. feels a little bit like a screw you, you know? <laughs> and and here's the interesting thing too. We were talking about how monstrous Day was in episode eight. Mm-hmm. And yet he he was affected by those experiences. And had she not done that, he would have advocated keeping Dawn alive and just kind of keeping this whole genetic dynasty thing a secret. He, he would have bent a little. He would have changed. He would have. He talks about he talks about it very explicitly in this argument that he has with Dusk, that he was changed by this uh, experience that he had walking the spiral, that maybe the Empire should bend a little bit. Uh, Dusk is I think naturally threatened by this, you know, any change from what's come before is necessarily revolutionary change. But uh, it's just a fascinating moment. Uh, Day also talks about uh, with Azura how much Dawn was like a son to him. Um, so Demarzel understands the pain that she is causing him when she does Absolutely. this. Absolutely. But is the way that she gets around her programming by telling herself this is preserving empire. This is preserving well, the is, genetic it, dynasty. It, I mean, what she does is not – I mean, it is in line with her programming. Right. Her programming – this is a unique circumstance mm-hmm. in the last 400 and some odd years that the genetic dynasty has been up and running. But um, yeah, I, I think Cleon the first would not have wanted this kid to be running around. Take me through Dusk's thinking here. He mentions that, listen, if the Galactic Council gets wind of this, we're through. Wait, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we built this. I can't, I know it's funny when we were we were shooting this. I What I like to say a lot of the times on the set is <sighs> I like to get the scene down, get in a couple of good takes. And then I like to say, if we have time permitting, let's just keep pushing it until we break it. Mm-hmm. Let's just see how far we can push it how far we can get you guys to go at it. The funny thing is they're, they both Lee and Terry have done a lot of stage acting and um, they were very keen on, on, on hitting each other for real. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I mean, that's, you want to talk about like un- unexpected moments when dusk calls off and slugs day. That was, I, it is I shocking. was like, Oh my it, God. It is shocking because you're watching the dissolution of the empire. Like these, these guys literally go at it and start beating on each other and wailing on each other. Yeah. And um, our, our son coordinator was like, no, I, he, he said, it's one thing to take a stage slab or something like that, but you, but you guys are going to have to smack each other like 50 times over the course of the day. So <laughs> no, we're not, we're not doing that. Um, one, uh, certainly one of the most chilling scenes in the series. And I think certainly the most chilling scene in the episode is, is Day sitting with Azura in the gardens that she so recently tended yeah. with so much skill and care and outlining for her how completely she has been erased from the world through 
the execution of everyone that she has She's ever, ever known, known or loved or worked yeah. with worked everyone with that anyone that would ever remember anyone that's ever had a meaningful impact on her or whom she has had a meaningful impact on and as chilling as that is i think the thing that even uh that just raised the hackles on my neck was that day was going to do it live he was going to do it right there yeah it's not like oh that's done we did it and now I'm telling you about it. It's, no, he does do it live. Right. Sit here and he's watch got, me do it. He's like, got like, like 1,500 snipers around <laughs> the galaxy that are targeting all these people, you know, her mother, her father, whomever, aunts, uncles, cousins, the first boy she kissed, the woman yeah. she lost her virginity to, just all of them, every single one of them. And he's just exquisitely, sadistically... Like, and when he, it, it's, so he's so conversational at the beginning of that scene. He is. He's chatty. He's very chatty. Yeah, and, which is what I wanted. And then, and then he, he walks her to this bench and you just get a sense when he gestures for her to take a seat that like, now's when the bad comes. Right. But, but when it comes, it's so much worse than I think anyone could imagine. Even as we speak, every member of your personal constellation is under our surveillance a particle beam targeting each of their brain stems. At my signal, they will all cease to exist. He is so unconscionably monstrous in this scene. And then you feel empathy for him in the throne room scene yeah. when Dawn is killed. And 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 I feel I like that hopefully the audience is just really confused about how they feel. We learn in this episode, and Day learns from Shadow Master Obrecht, that um, at some point, the genetic material of Cleon the First has actually been altered. There may yeah, not the principium. be the principium. The source material is now corrupted. Um, and may have been for some time. Meaning, Day just saw Dawn get his neck snapped. Right. Because he wasn't a pure copy. And now, Day learns himself a few moments later that he might not be either, that he might be in the exact same boat. Right. And the same with Dusk. Uh, is he going to tell Dusk about this, or is this uh, going to be a secret between them going Well, forward? no, they, uh, Obrick says Dusk is being examined as we speak. And so the, the, the interesting thought experiment is, well, well, what happened in the palace the next day? Yeah. <laughs> did, did, did Damrizel kill them all? Did she not? Did they... What? What was that conversation like at the breakfast table the next day? Uh, upon receiving this news, Day is driven to attempt to smash uh, the coffin of the Principium. Again, which... that long shadow of the ultimate uber father that he resents. Yeah. Demarzel reacts to this extreme upheaval in the genetic dynasty by tearing herself apart, tearing her skin off. Um on some level, she has failed in her core mission to preserve the genetic dynasty. I, I think you'd argue not by any fault of her own, but she's right, failed. Right. Is that what is causing this incredible, like, outburst of self-harm? I think it's both. I think it's also this, um, it's this sort of horrible primal scream Yeah. because... And that's why I was keen in the season. You know, we see these little glimpses of Demerzel repairing herself. But 
we, we don't perceive her as a robot. And so I thought it would be really fun to wait till the very end of the season and have her just rip her whole face off and see that she's a robot. But that's where you understand that she's hopefully that, that she's just such a prisoner in this terrible yeah. situation where she's in a basically indestructible body who's been programmed to, you know, to, to help abet this crazy messed up, you know, system that, that she clearly probably doesn't believe in. And so she's just in this terrible primal bind and, that's why it's also interesting that the if if you think about how the show began and how Demerzel's character is kind of a slow roll that the I actually think that scream is the final scene in season one. Mm. And like I said, the Dakota is the first scene in season two. And so I think her scream kind of sums up the the futility of the genetic dynasty and 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 the ego and and sort of flying in the face of 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 just well I was going to say human nature she's not human but just but you know th- this ridiculous attempt to control the uncontrollable David this has been this is a show that has so many big ideas but also like Flesh and blood relationships that really break your heart at times. What are your hopes for season two? Exactly that, which is I, I, I'm, I'm hoping it's a, a show of big ideas and bold ideas. But at the end of the day, the thing that excites me the most about the show are, are these relationships. In what other show can you tell a story where a mother meets her daughter for the first time and her daughter's yeah. older than she is. And, and, um, but it's still, it's still a story of an adopted daughter meeting her birth mother. Yeah. And it's still a story for Gail of growing up as an outsider, um, but still liking her culture and loving her culture and mourning for the loss of her culture. And, and so it's, uh, you know, I, I'm hoping that, that people will be drawn in by the emotion and, and, and that they'll see themselves as strange as it sounds in these characters. I'm really excited for hopefully a future season because um, also it's, there's a lot of setup in season one. Mm-hmm. And so to use, you know, a kind of jazz metaphor, it's like theme <laughs> and variation, right? Yeah. Like we've done the theme, now we can riff on the variation. Do you do you feel like you there's anything that you come away with from this experience that you that you learned from adapting this? Really, well, I'll, it, it's funny that that reminded me of one thing that I was you know in the course of this uh, obviously rereading the books many times, rereading uh, the prequels, the sequels that Asimov wrote, um, rereading a lot of biographical information about Asimov. The other thing that's interesting about the original trilogy. You know, the first book is comprised of a series of stories, but he was just, you know, a writer that was cutting his teeth, making his first few sales and just basically earning a living paycheck to paycheck, coming up with stories. 
And and the stories that seemed to be selling well were foundation stories. And so his editor said, write me another foundation story, write me another foundation story. So what's, what's interesting about the genesis of the foundation series is that he didn't plan that it would be a series. He didn't plan that it would be a trilogy. It's not like someone handed him. He wasn't Isaac Asimov with a big capital I and a big capital A. No one gave him a contract for three books and he thought it all out. He was riffing as he was going along. I would just say what's interesting for us, especially in the post-lost, post-Game of Thrones Mm -hmm. world, is that if you're going to do a big show like this, you can't really riff. Right. You you need to have some idea of where you're going. And so necessarily that meant that even though we got to the end, it's not like we had no idea where we were going. We did spend about a month talking about, okay, so hypothetically, where do these strands lead us into mm. season two and season three? So that we're not just starting from scratch and saying, okay, we've been handed this box of toys. What do we do with them? Well, congratulations on the season. Uh, it's a fantastic show. And I can't wait for season two. Thank you. Uh, I It was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I, and I really hope people enjoy it. And um, I hope it's the kind of thing that people want to watch more than once. For all of you, thanks for listening to Foundation, the official podcast. Be sure to follow on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed and watch Foundation on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios and recorded at Patches Sound in Hollywood, California. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Max Linsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Barry Finkel. Our senior managing producer is Gabrielle Lewis. Our producers are Amud Ali Akbar and Jonathan Shiflett. Darby Maloney is our senior editor, and Hannes Brown mixed this episode. Our composer is Carly Bond, and I am Jason Concepcion. David, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me, but you're not going to ask me what's in the vault? David, what is, is what else is in the vault? Season two. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> thank you all for listening. Thank you.